Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. Just over a decade ago, the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, started the development of a do-not-track standard that would limit the way in which people could be tracked from website to website. The standard would also help to limit data sales since user profiles would become less interesting. But after many years of conversations and negotiations, the standard failed, and in 2018, the plug was pulled on the project. But now, Do Not Track is back. On the 6th of October, a consortium of organizations announced Global Privacy Control, a new technical standard to help companies meet the CCPA Do Not Sell requirement and similar requirements around the world. Global Privacy Control is supported by the likes of Mozilla and Brave, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the New York Times, as well as the company from today's guest, Abine. Rob Chevelle co-founded the Boston-based company in 2009, and looking at his track record, he certainly will have a lot to say about privacy-friendly, consumer-facing solutions. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So I'm really excited about today, but Paul, I'll have to tell you I'm running a little late on the unexpected question because Charlie the cat tried to put in an appearance. So let's see. Oh, I like this one. Teacher or student? So Rob, that is the unexpected question. Teacher or student? And I think it refers to what would you consider yourself? Lifelong student, Kay. Lifelong Lifelong. student. Love it. And why is that? Can you elaborate a little? Well, I think as an entrepreneur, you you always have to be a student. Of course, you're teaching your employees and and your colleagues what you learn, and you're constantly trying to do that in a more efficient manner so that you can get all the stuff in your head downstream to people that can act on it, which is its own challenge. But ultimately, I think myself and, and, and most entrepreneurs are, are learners. We're constantly trying to figure out what we need to learn next and what we did learn from, you know, all the failures that, you know, that we've, we've, we've experienced. And, and really entrepreneurship is, is a lot about mm-hmm. failure and, and getting through the failure and, and learning from it. So clearly from my perspective, uh, more of a, uh, a student than a teacher. Well, let me say I'm a teacher and I, I guess that that's no surprise either. I actually spend most of the day today teaching uh, fundamentals of privacy law to an international organization. I just, because of my passion for, for privacy, I like to share what's, uh, what's going on. I think that's one of the reasons why we created this podcast in the first place, to share our knowledge with, with the listeners. And, and I like to share experiences and best practices. I sometimes call it spreading the gospel of privacy. I'm not Ooh. religious at all, but 
yeah, a privacy is, evangelist. Yeah, I'm, I, sometimes I feel a bit like that. So let's let's stick to teacher for now. <laughs> well, and then y'all know where I'm going. It's going to be both. <laughs> I'm I'm on board with you, Rob. That lifelong learner, especially if I you know actually ever complete my PhD, that you know they're probably going to kick me out of the program for taking so long for. But they wouldn't let me do it on privacy. So I just kind of refused to do it, the dissertation. So, you know, but we're getting there. And then, of course, teaching. I, Paul and I, the same thing for the podcast. I love being able to bring knowledge to people, whether that knowledge is coming from us or that knowledge is, in most cases, coming from our guests, which we love. But I also do teach privacy law at my alma mater at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Let's just put that plug in there. <laughs> and uh, I love it. I, I love teaching mainly because I learn more from my students or I learn as much as they learn in class. So it's, it's always teaching and learning at the same time. Okay. So Wonderful. with that, let's jump into the first topic, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, Rob, first, can you tell us a bit about how you got into privacy and, and uh, what, what Abine did to, well, what Abine is doing actually to help people be privacy friendly and, and, and control their own privacy? Sure. You know, I really got started too long ago now, you know, over 10 years ago. And at that time, very few people were talking about privacy as a business. In fact, it was before Facebook's IPO. And I was a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur. And all of the people in my circles were talking about social. They were talking about how big social could be. Mm-hmm. And we, can we get into the Facebook news feed and and all of this extraordinary growth because people were excited about connecting with each other online, especially people like, you know, our parents and older generations that Facebook, I think, helped helped connect and 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 for the first time into social networks and things like that. So despite all the awkwardness we see mm-hmm. from the the older people on Facebook, it's, it's awesome. They love it. Yeah, I mean, they, they do. And it was useful for them, right? Uh, they, there was no such thing as uh, an easy way to share uh, photos uh, from family and extended family and friends for them. And it was a it was a powerful first experience. Of course, you know, we get we'll talk a little bit later, I guess, about how that affected the younger generation. But a lot of times putting everybody together into one social network doesn't work. It doesn't work in life and it doesn't work. In life. But, but at any rate, you know, we Myself and, and some much smarter entrepreneurs that had gone to MIT that I knew were talking about the big trends on the web. And one of, one of my uh, co-founders now said, hey, look, the, the problem really is about how we're allowed to control our information. And right now, the web is very flat. It doesn't give us a choice. When we go to a website, they ask us to to register an account or to, to, to create an account to go shopping or what have you. And you don't have a choice. You have to tell them all your information and give them your credit card and, and, and they're tracking your visit and, and, and all this other stuff. And there's no layer of the internet that allows people to do the same thing that we've been doing in social groups for tens of thousands of years, which is to be different people in a way, or have at least a different persona. The kind of information that I'm sharing with my extended family is different than the information I share with my uh, significant other, which is different than the information I share with my uh, mm-hmm. college friends. And, and as that's well, it should human. be. As well, it should be, and 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 that's human. It, you know, we can it, it, we enjoy the freedom 
of having slightly different personalities and slightly different conversations and revealing somewhat interestingly, radically different levels of information to different people because we're always doing that. It's all it's we it's what we've always done, and we're social creatures, and and it's just sort of part of being a human. And and we looked at the internet and said, or at least my my co-founder, who is really a visionary, did and and said, hey this is missing from the internet. Maybe we can create a really big company and a really interesting company that puts a layer of identity control and we can call it privacy. We can call it identity. We can call it control. We used all those words, but we wanted to enable the internet with some of that uh, nuance Mm -hmm. around information sharing and control that exists in the real world, but didn't exist in the digital world. Wonderful. So, we d- we don't do product plugs, but you have two but we main have products, right? Can you just tell us a bit about those? Because what I saw at the website, they are pretty interesting. I, I, I'm not here to tell anybody to use use anything that we make. I, I am here to talk about the issues, and and we identified three issues when we started the company, and they turned into three products, which were then converged into two. But the three issues around online privacy were were the following: one. When we go online and open our browser, open our mobile phone, a lot of information is leaking out about where we go without us doing anything other than surf. Mm-hmm. So that was one issue. And to stop that or help people control it, we created a tracker blocker, which takes the which shows individuals all the different hidden trackers that are being used when they visit a website in their browser. It counts them up. It gives them a little thing that says, hey, there's 11 trackers here. There's three trackers here. There's zero trackers here. There are 537 trackers here. And it's something I think that Trustdoc knows knows a whole lot about on the business side. And we allowed people to visualize that and control whether they were comfortable with sites using those tracking. Like a lot of people would be comfortable with Google Analytics because they understand why a company would want to use Google Analytics, but they might not be uh, comfortable with things like the Facebook like button, Mm -hmm. which was tracking people if their Facebook account was open, no matter whether they click the like button or not. Um, talking about K consent is not, uh, silence is not consent. So there were, there were lots of things around that, but that was the first privacy issue that we identified and we mapped the product to it. And we actually called that product do not track plus it was the idea was, Hey, don't track me. And it was, it was meant to be an extension of that standards process, which we, which you talked about in the beginning of uh, your introduction, Paul, which we can go back mm-hmm. to. But let me just finish on these on these privacy problems. The second problem was, hey, we're constantly forced to give out our information when we register for a new website. They ask us for our email. They ask us for signs these days for our phone number, and when we shop, they ask us for our credit card and our address and all the, all this other information. And we said, hey, is there a better way that we can give consumers a more nuanced choice than just constantly either giving out their information or abandoning, abandon using the website or the service itself. And so we created a product, which is now called Blur, which is a password manager with special privacy features built into it. People call these features different terms. We call it masking, which is ironic in, in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> where the entire uh, world has to wear masks uh, to, to avoid coronavirus exposure, except for the White House. See, but, um, masks are good. <laughs> but uh, but 
we, we call it masking, but the concept is it, you know, Apple recently introduced a feature similar and they call it relaying. Some people call it burner or disposable credentials. But the idea was when you go to a website in your browser and they ask you for your email, your phone number, and you click into that field and you have our tool installed for what you'll get is an option. It says, hey, do you want to give them your real email? Click this button. And it, or do you want to give them a new email, an alias email, a masked, what we call a masked email, which is an email we create for you on the fly that isn't your, your real email. And, and so if that company starts to spam you or starts to track you via that email in a way that you don't feel comfortable with, it could be even your cat's name, you can, you can customize them, that, that you have a, a, a level of control over it. So in a way, you're, you're, you're able to create personas for all these different relationships that you're creating online. So that was the second problem. And the third problem was, hey, people would, our customers came to us and say, hey, that, that's great that I can stop tracking when I go online and I can use different credentials instead of my real email address and my real phone number because I'm getting constant robocalls or my real credit card, which is constantly getting uh, hacked and data breaches. It's great that I can make these mass credentials and, and use them uh, they're they're actually usable. That's great. But how about the problem that my information is already out there? I've already been using the internet. I already have lots of accounts. Like, what should I do? What should I do about that problem, Avon? And we created a service called Delete Me, which goes out, finds the which you sign up for, and we have privacy advisors and technology. And we go out and we we look for your personal information that's available on Google, easily, easy to search, easy to buy at different data brokers. And we remove mm-hmm. all of that information from those data brokers by, by using uh, requests to opt you out of those databases, removal requests, and all the new laws that are happening, which I think we'll get back to with this uh, standard that you uh, were talking about before, Paul. So those are the three, the three uh, components that we felt were important to solve, problems we felt were important to solve to give consumers more control and more privacy when they go online and conduct their digital life. Wonderful. It's it's an impressive observation, I guess, is the right word, to, to bring those elements together and, and indeed make browsing the web a lot more privacy friendly for for consumers i'm curious about the consumer buy into this i mean is this uh, a, a popular thing i mean i love it i i love it but is this something that a lot of consumers are aware of or do you find that is uh something more younger consumers are aware of or is there a population it it seems to appeal to more than others yeah it's a great question i would say we're you know 10 years 10 years into starting this company mm-hmm. we're still in the early stages of awareness And, you know, this is one of, you know, this is one of those topics that we were constantly uh, talking about with investors, with with the media and 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 with, you know, with with everyone, with every one of our employees internally. And look, I I think we've had we've had a a remarkable amount of success. We have millions of of users using our products all over the world. And we have a a really fast growing, profitable company uh, now, which has been accelerating over the last 18 months, I would say, because I think there's never been more consumer awareness, you know, about the consequences of digital data being out there and, and, and online privacy. And people are realizing this because of all the political 
the things that have happened, you know, post Edward Snowden and people are also, you know, even as recently as the demonstrations that were happening across across cities in America, people were coming to us and saying, hey, can I sign up or delete me? I'm worried. I was involved in one of these protests oh, wow. or the demonstrations and people on and people on both sides, by the way, people on the, the law enforcement side and people on the protesters side. So there's just a growing and, and, and you know, Netflix has come out with, you know, this uh, the, the social dilemma and people are watching that. And Apple is now running nationwide uh, ads about being a privacy friendly company. And that's why you should buy Apple products. So like the 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 awareness has never been higher. All that said to your question, it is still a tiny amount of a larger pie of, of people that are using the internet right. that understand what's happening with their data and understand the importance of having some level of privacy control over it. So yeah. speaking about control, what is global privacy control? I mentioned at the start, it's some form of successor to the, the failed do not track standard, but that's just my words. You're probably much better than I am to, to describe what it is and what it intends to do. Oh, no, I think your words are good. I mean, I do not track was a failed standard. And I was in a part of the, the uh, industry and consumer and political groups that were trying to form it and trying to have a debate about what it would be. And I sat, I remember many years ago, I sat in Brussels where, you know, it's sort of like the UN of Europe and all these people are being brought together mm -hmm. there from very, very different, with very different opinions. And they try to, you know, agree on things that should be a reasonable compromise for a standard. And, and you know, as an entrepreneur, you're just sitting there and you, I remember being so frustrated because the conversation was so political. and I, I just, after a while, scratched my head and said, you know what, there's never, we're never going to get there, that we're never going to get to an agreement between ad tech and consumer privacy advocates and Republicans and Democrats uh, in the U.S. And, 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 and people in the EU that were thinking about what would become GDPR. We'll just, we'll never agree on these points. And in fact, the industry could not self-regulate. Mm -hmm. And so that brings us to, I will never be a politician. I'll never be a teacher and I will never be a politician, but it does bring us to, to your question, which is, so why, if that failed, why, what's this GPC, global privacy control? Why are you, are you trying to do sort of the same thing again? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and my answer to that is we now have a variable that has changed that we didn't have eight years ago with do not track. And that variable is we have legislation that has been enacted for the first time, both in Europe with the GDPR and in California with the CCPA and in a bunch of other U.S. states that, it, that with pending bills to protect consumers' privacy rights, particularly their online privacy rights. And so what we are trying to do, what this consortium or group is trying to do is provide uh, a set of standards and easy to use technologies, both for consumers and for uh, businesses and, and, and the owners of websites that consumers visit, to be able to talk to each other more fluidly, more efficiently about what their preferences are around privacy controls, data sharing and selling, 
and a bunch of these things that are now enshrined into law, at least in some U.S. states and in Europe. So again, what changed is that Do Not Track never had a legal framework for enforcing behavior related to controlling your data before. And now we do have that. And so I think it's worth, it's a worthwhile experiment to see if we can make technology help the new laws in practice. And one of the big problems with privacy, as everyone knows, is they go make some laws and then it has to get done in practice. And, you know, that's why businesses like TrustArc are, are in business. And, and that's why people are, are still frustrated when they go from site to site and they get another message saying, accept cookies, you know, accept this ter- these terms of service. And it's very frustrating. And, and, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, we really need to apply both the law and technology mm-hmm. and to, to this problem so that we can have a, have a better equilibrium, a better dialogue and better solutions that, that work in practice, not just in theory. Right. I do. So I was looking at the, the press release on global privacy control and, you know, people know that we'll provide this link uh, in the show resources for you. But one of them talks about the California Attorney General actually looking at regulating this to make it legally binding under the CCPA. What do you think that's going to take? Is it going to be by means of his enforcement or is it going to be, you think he might actually pass this in? Well, I'll give it, I, you know, I, I don't have a good visibility into what any regulators believe, <laughs> believe or don't believe. Pull out uh, that crystal weird. ball there, Rob. <laughs> you, you, you went to law school with some of these people. You probably have a better idea. They're weird creatures. They're, they're, they're independent minded and, you know, they're very different than, than I do. But I can tell you, at least from, uh, my company's perspective, we, we can start to talk to the regulators in a way that we couldn't before if we have users and websites adopting this standard. And I'll, and I'll give you a concrete example. If, if a data broker that publishes, you know, profiles and advertises those profiles for sale on hundreds of millions of Americans receives a request via the GPC to not sell their data. And we at delete, we uh, at Avon and our delete me service goes on behalf of a customer and opts that customer out of that data broker's database and tells that data broker not to sell that data. And we still see later that data broker republishing that person's profile and that person's data for sale. We can then talk to the regulators with data. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's what that that's the kind of thing, just for example, where regulators can finally use data from the real world to apply to enforcement actions and can then consider whether they want to make technologies or certain standards part literally part of the law or not. From what I've seen, actually, the, the, the regulators would be fairly positive. And in any case, Advocate General Becerra on Twitter welcomed 
the the development of the global privacy control. And he said, and I quote, this proposed standard is a first step towards a meaningful global privacy control that will make it simple and easy for consumers to exercise their privacy rights online. The California Department of Justice is encouraged to see the technology community developing a global privacy control in furtherance of the CCPA and consumer privacy rights. So from that perspective, I think there is a lot of positivity, uh, also looking at the possibility to indeed organize that central opt-out. Under the GDPR, there are maybe a few more questions. And I, I, I assume somehow that you don't read Dutch and that you don't read the <laughs> Dutch Financial Daily on a regular basis. But there was also an article in the Dutch Financial Daily on global privacy control, where some GDPR experts said that it might be more difficult to use this in combination with GDPR and also with e-privacy because the standard is still based on opt-out instead of the EU requirement of opt-in and also questioning whether it would just work for cookies or also for other tracking technology like browser fingerprinting. What are your views on that? Well, first of all, my my dear aunt Alice was born in Amsterdam and has constantly <laughs> sent me news articles in both languages, although I do not sadly speak Dutch, so careful what you wish for. I think that this, we, we a consortium that's defining the standard, I think has learned a lot from uh, past experience with Do Not Track and from the GDPR. And I think there is, I think we internally as a group of, of companies, both from, from many angles, both pro-consumer privacy companies like Avon, as well as publishers and and, 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 and and other industry practitioners, believe that there's enough flexibility technically to incorporate a standard that, that works with the GDPR, that works with an opt, you know, eat flexibly with an opt-out versus an opt-in approach. And I think one that can also incorporate the kinds of other tracking technologies that are in common use today, such as browser fingerprinting and even even more worrisome mm-hmm. clandestine new tracking technologies. So I'm optimistic that the technology can be flexible enough, and we've learned enough over the last 10 years, really to make this truly a global standard with a capital G. But I think it's going to require a lot of discussion and a lot of debate and a lot of adoption and trial and error across the EU and the US. And that's why we're launching this, Mm -hmm. because talk is cheap. So what does that roadmap look like? What, What are the next steps and how can we help? That's a great question. I think that... I will defer on the roadmap question to to the group and I and I should I should be able to get you all some information on what those next steps are but there's an active active developer community around the standard and we're looking at lots of people that are contributing ideas and and ideas importantly ideas in code from a broad community that's that and 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 that's important because you know, any group is only as smart as the size of the group. And so as we open source and look to contributions from 
lots of individual researchers, software developers, and 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 so forth. We're we're seeing ideas show up. I think in the in the repository, the code repository, that are really new and interesting that none of the group thought of before. And I think that's just a, a very heartening, and it's very important in developing a innovative and dynamic set of standards that can be extrapolated to include more of the global community. And it's not just the GDPR. And now we're seeing standards in, you know, in Brazil and e- even in, in, in emerging countries across Asia. And again, I think that's where we have the opportunity to really make, to make this a global standard and a global conversation. So from a roadmap perspective specifically, let me get back to you. But I think we are seeing a lot of, a lot of ideas. And like any standard, it will go through a whole lot of discussion and debate mm-hmm. and, and input from the W3C and ideas checked in by random developers, uh, you know, working at night in Korea and who knows what. And this is just a start. And I think that's the important thing to emphasize. We are starting or restarting really a conversation that got lost. In the in the woods of of industry politics and, and and so forth, and we're restarting that, and and we want to try to do it the right way, but it is going to be a long road ahead, and we are very very early. This is week number two or three. <laughs> but W three C is back in the loop. They are very good. K, you want to move to California? Well, not you physically, I- but. I was going to say the weather there may be better than uh, Arizona right now, but you know, I actually am a little interested because I've been looking at your Twitter and trying to find why are you driving towards this? What what made you start thinking about this? I don't see anything well, out there about what your driver is. What are you passionate about for this? Yeah. Sorry, um, I know that's a hard question I, I, sometimes. I, I, you know. One one should never look at my Twitter if you want. <laughs> I've been having a good time reading it. If you want an if you want an industry approved perspective uh, on Twitter, you know I tend to just randomly speak my mind and randomly tweet, which I think you know at one point is the way that Jack Dorsey and his co-founders actually used Twitter. But at any rate, you know I think what drives me is let you know a lot of people assume that I'm this privacy zealot who, you know, won't ever use social networks and, you know, walks around with the equivalent of a tinfoil hat on and has a flip phone. And none of that is actually true. I do have an account on Facebook. I, I do share my information with lots of companies that, that, that I trust. But I really do, I really have come to believe and, and, and believe passionately that Privacy and control of our information and visibility into it is is, is sort of a fundamental part of, of being free. And if you really sit down and, you know, I still have, you know, go to Silicon Valley very often, though I live in Boston. If you really sit down with the, the people underneath the, the latest AI projects in Silicon Valley, they will, we have, we have these interesting debates these days, but they will tell me over coffee that they believe, they really believe that AI is going to be this dominant force that is really going to take over, in some senses, control of humanity. And, you know, while I don't believe that and we have these debates about it, 
I do think it it shows how much data these these people that are running the AI engines now have and how predictive they believe that data is about us as humans, as individuals and as groups. And I think that's something that everyone, if they're not, you know, they're not thinking about it today, which they're probably not because we talked about, you know, we have millions of, of, of users and customers, but, you know, it really needs to be tens of millions before you even register on the, on the dial of, of, of a mass market. I really think it is, it is an important issue. And I think it's going to be an increasingly important topic for everyone, consumers, businesses, politicians, regulators to, to discuss over the next decade. I was talking to somebody about themes and they were asking me, hey, you were around when, you know, the first internet.com boom happened in, in, in Silicon Valley in 2000 and 1999. And I was trying to look back and, and think about these themes by decade. And I think, you know, the first from 2000 to 2010, that decade was really about realizing what everybody was originally excited about when, when the internet bubble burst, which is, hey, the internet has all this promise. We can build amazing mobile phones and we can build e-commerce and someday malls won't exist and all <laughs> this other stuff. And, and that actually, that actually has, has, has come true. Yeah. But the next decade, 2000, the, la the, the last decade, 2010 to 2000 to now, to the pandemic has really, unfortunately, you know, one way to look at it, obviously I'm biased is it's really been about data mm -hmm. and tracking. It's really about taking that first web that we built and making it super commercial and, and, and super data driven. And it's really sucked in a lot of humanity's digital footprint. And I think the next decade may be about trying to go back to somewhere where we can have an equilibrium. Reclaiming privacy? I'm not saying, you know, put... put Pandora back in the box. I'm saying get. I'm saying get this somewhere where we can have a reasonable amount of control, a reasonable amount of transparency, and a reasonable equilibrium. And you know, this comes all the way back to the GPC. Somebody was asking us, "Well, hey, do you have any early data? Do you have any early data? What are your users mm -hmm. doing?" And obviously, people that find our tool, Blur and Delete Me, are you know are fairly. You tend to think are fairly motivated. By privacy concerns, but we we actually get a lot of people that just want to stop spam, stop robocalls. They're afraid of hacking, or they want to shop privately without giving away their credit card. Political texting. People, I, think, I can't tell you exactly. political texting. God help us all. Oh God! I mean, the, the political spam is, is is out of control. Right. It'll all go away. It'll all go away in thirty days. <laughs> but 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 what we've seen. Early data, completely anecdotal, taken in, in context, is, is only about 32% of our Blur users have turned on the, the global privacy control Got it. unilaterally. So that it, so that it's sending the same signal on all websites. We have we have uh, uh, a way in the user interface where you can turn it on for a single site okay. and say, hey, don't sell, my, you know, hey site, don't sell my information. But it hasn't been everybody, and I think that speaks to this concept of of what I'm talking about for the next decade, an equilibrium. Mm -hmm. I think that there's plenty of people that are willing to share their data as long as they know what it's being used for or if they're compensated for it, right. which is part of the CCPA and part of the new CPRA that's going to, if passed, supplant the C CCPA. 
and it's part of uh, some of the, the the thinking behind GDPR, which is, you know, we need transparency. But once you have transparency, there needs to be a better conversation between marketers, businesses, and consumers. So CPRA is the ballot initiative proposition 24 that will also be voted upon on November 3rd, right? And that should introduce more GDPR-like elements into the California privacy legislation. What are, your, what, are, what are the chances that it gets passed? Are you confident that it will get passed and that it will set a new, even higher standard for other states and maybe a federal privacy law? Well, we're supportive of the CPRA. I was going to ask because a lot of uh, privacy people have, you know, come out opposing it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the main look, I think all all of this legislation is imperfect, and it's. <laughs> I think I I was writing a blog post about this, and I used the term ferociously imperfect, and and I think my editors took it out. But I actually believe <laughs> I actually believe it in that word. I think it's that bad, and I and and. And, and I think that's okay, but I do think I do think as an entrepreneur, I have a tremendous bias for action. I cannot go back to Brussels and have another set of meetings about that that I had eight years ago about do not track because I don't have the time or the patience. <laughs> uh, I'm already a very impatient person, and so I have a bias for action. Brussels meetings are so much fun. <laughs> I know they only I take know, about two years. <laughs> Well, there's a certain there's a certain group of people. I won't, don't get me started. There's a certain group of people that I'm one of those people that likes those people. <laughs> they're, they're lovely people. They take me out to wonderful dinners, but you know, when they look back on their life, what have they accomplished? It's fantastic. I'll just leave it at that. It, the, the the beer and the oysters are unparalleled, <laughs> unparalleled. So, you know, I do, I do, I, I do. I have a tremendous bias for for sort of deliberation in action. So, for example, if a lot of the uh, a lot of the people that oppose new legislation for privacy, CPRA, and other opponents say, "Hey, we need more time. We need more time to have a more thoughtful debate before we pass a law that has unintended consequences." And to that, I say, "I like that." BS. BS. <laughs> we will never will never get consequences if all we do is talk. Mm. We'll never mm-hmm. learn. And, you know, you, you, your question initially was, hey, are you a teacher or are you a student? I think we all have to be students. And, and the only way to learn is to go to class. And you can't have class if you're constantly talking about what the class should, classroom should look like. So I think the analogy to here is, is, is germane. I think we need to pass more legislation to create more informed, consequential debate. And by definition, there will be unintended consequences. There will be bad things that we have to go fix. That is part of of learning, and that is part of making progress. If we're not actively doing that, and all we're doing is talking with a bunch of politicians and lobbyists, we're not going to make progress on privacy or anything else. I like it. It it takes more than talk. Yeah, I agree. So... In moving to California, and I think, Paul, this is where you were going with this, where would you like to see California go with their regulation or enforcement, either way, well, the consequences? Well, I think I think one thing you mentioned is sort of where does it go after this? It, does it pass or not? And then is there a federal legislation? And I was going to just touch on, on both those things. Okay. I do think it will pass. The reason I think the CPRA will pass is because I think 
it is tied to what I mentioned before with Netflix and Apple and this growing awareness we're seeing of people signing up for our services. I think that people are starting, even though it's a minority, are starting to wake up, care, and take action around their privacy. And if they see something that's a ballot initiative that says, hey, vote for something with privacy on it versus vote against something with privacy. They may not be informed, but they're going to vote for something for privacy. Look, who wants to read 54 pages of legal leads? Nobody. (laughs) Hey, Um, hey, we make a living on that. (laughs) Okay, okay. Some some people do. Some people do. And then they go out for a nice dinner. Yeah, Pop reads it multiple times. Let's just be frank. It's not always fun. So so I do think it will pass. One of the other things that people seem to oppose is this idea of pay for privacy. I think it's this idea that part of the law says that if you do not, if, 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 if a consumer says, hey, don't share, don't share or sell my information, companies have sort of a right, you know, a more explicit right than they had before, potentially, to differently, to give them right. you know, less discount or a different price or, you know, it's one and the same. And, you know, to that, I would say, as an entrepreneur, you know, tough luck, EFF, That's the way markets work. If I don't give you all my information, and you don't give me as much of a discount, it doesn't mean that poor people are going to get no privacy. It just means that markets are functioning. Now, there is a there is a bigger societal issue. What's being tracked about groups, right. socioeconomic status wise and things like that. But, you know, on the Internet, you know, it is fair for companies to charge and incentivize people. And if we don't start making this data exchange thing way more transparent. And if marketers don't start taking it seriously, we're never going to get anywhere. I guarantee you, we will never get anywhere. So you have to have, you have to have differential pricing based on the amount of data that is, you know, is being shared or not being shared. And I hope that's part of a federal privacy bill. And whoever... I hope it is too. You know, whoever is in the, whatever administration is in the White House, I do, I, I am optimistic that we will, if not enact a privacy bill, make much more progress towards, you know, one of the two that are already draft and, 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 and on the table. And I will say when I, I say that I hope it's in there is, I mean, I hope it actually goes to this level of addressing these uh, topics, because most of the federal privacy legislation you see get anywhere really is amazingly watered down and superficial and just psh- goes across the top. So I really do hope that we get something meaningful and substantive. And I loved seeing where the law is driving. But I, I, I'll wrap it up, Paul, unless you have a question. I'll just ask Rob, when you decided to come on the show, was there anything in particular that you had in mind that you wanted to make sure that we get out to the audience? He's there, shaking there, his head. There, there's, there was zero. You know, I enjoy getting on these, having a conversation like we've had today especially people in the U.S. and Europe, both the business side of, of, of sort of privacy and the consumer side and the politics around it. I think it's important to talk about. And, and, and so thank you for having me. You're just a privacy geek. So maybe a little <laughs> bit of an evangelist. Evangelist often. sounds a little bit better <laughs> widespread than you're just a privacy geek. I love it. Or privacy zealot. I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And on that note, we'll wrap up today's episode of Serious Privacy. If you want to know more about Global Privacy Control, I recommend you go to their website, globalprivacycontrol.org. We'll also post the link to the GitHub in, in the show notes for all those of you who really want to dive deep into all the technical details. It is worth uh, to, to take a look there. Uh, and we'll post some further links in the Dutch article <laughs> for those of you who really that want Rob's to aunt might uh, send punish themselves in the, uh, in the show notes. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and comment and review us in your favorite podcast app. And should you have any questions or suggestions, or if indeed you want to be on a future episode of Serious Privacy, feel free to reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at, at @podcastprivacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Thank you again for listening to us and until our next episode. Bye. Bye, y'all. That was serious privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesi Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>